You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Good morning. (laughs) How is everyone doing this morning? Good, man. It is so good to be with you guys worshiping together this morning. If we have not met, my name is Pastor Brett. Well, my name is Brad, not Pastor Brett, but I'm Brad. Welcome. We're glad you're here and uh, glad you're worshiping here with us this morning. We are uh, moving into our last movement of a series we've been in since January. We've been in a 16-week series called Pursued, where we're looking at the entire story of the Bible, and it's going to end on Easter. So if you're like ready for the series to be over... Three more weeks. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we're, we're entering the last movement of this series, uh, which is God has redeemed us, and how does he restore us? Like, what is the movement in Scripture after God's redemption story? And it's his restoration story. And uh, so whenever I drive down the road, whenever I'm, like, driving and I come upon a specific type of car, a specific type of driver, I am every single time tempted to just lay on my horn as long and as loud as I can. Unfortunately, I drive a Jeep Patriot whose horn sounds like that of a baby bird that just fell out of its nest and was chirping. But if I had a manly horn, I would be tempted every single time to lay on my horn at this specific type of driver. In fact, my wife knows this about me. So every time we're driving down the road, even if she's driving, I like lean over to try to honk sometimes. Every single time we're driving down the road, she looks over at me. She's like, don't do it. Don't do it. She knows it's coming. She pre-yells at me for wanting to honk at this type of driver. What type of driver, what type of car is it that I'm constantly tempted to honk at? It's this type right here. (laughs) Student drivers. Anybody else? Just me? Okay, just me. Maybe you're sitting there on your high horse thinking, how could that happen? I said, I, I'm tempted to. I didn't say I actually do it, okay? I just really want to. In fact, Marcus, who's up there running slides, is going to be taking driver's ed at some point, and I'm, I'm going to find you, buddy. He, uh, he mocked my shoes this morning, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to honk behind him the whole time. Why am I so tempted to want to honk behind student drivers? Well, when I was a student driver, the very first time ever got on the road, I mean, this is my very first time driving, and I'm on the East Belt Line, if anybody knows what it's like to drive on the East Belt Line. And all of a sudden, this big old truck comes up behind me and just lays on his horn. It probably was one of you guys here somewhere. Just lays on his horn. And if you can imagine, like, remember the very first time you ever got on the road and drove? I mean, you're like, you're terrified. You're wondering if you're doing anything wrong. Like, you just don't know how to drive yet. Some of us still don't know how to drive, but you don't know how to drive yet. And so somebody honking on their horn behind you is terrifying. You're like, what did I do wrong? Like, is that person just being a jerk like I am? Like, what what did I do wrong? And so I'll never forget, like, driving down the East Belt Line and watching this guy after he honked at me and just having my eyes on this mirror just watching him and just watching him and just watching him so much so that eventually... All of a sudden, we're driving, and the car that I'm in comes to a grinding halt, 
and the driver's ed instructor had to use his emergency kind of like brake on the right side of the car to keep me from hitting the car in front of me. <laughs> the reality is I was so focused on what was behind me that I nearly destroyed what was in front of me. I was so focused on the rear view mirror and what was behind me that I nearly decimated and destroyed what was ahead of me. And I think that's exactly how some of us walk through this life. That we walk through this life with our eyes fixed on the rearview mirror of past pain and past wounds and past hurts and past regrets. And we are at risk of destroying the new thing, the thing that God has in front of us. But maybe that's not your problem. Like maybe you don't walk through this life with your eyes on the past. Maybe you walk through this life with crippling anxiety about the future ahead. That when you think about the future, that the anxiety that kind of creeps in for you is like, am I going to be able to pay the bills? Am I going to be able to put food on the table? And so some of us have such an anxiety about what lies ahead that we are paralyzed with fear right now. Maybe you don't live with your eyes on the past, your eyes on the future. Maybe you live with your eyes on the present right here and right now, that your mantra in life is, I'm going to live for the moment, which, to be honest, isn't any better of a story. Because what can happen if you just live for the present, if you just live for the, the moment, is we can live purely for pleasure or purely for survival. I'm just doing the best I can without having any kind of vision for what God has ahead. And, and I am convinced, guys, that there is a better way that we are invited to live. There's a better story that we are invited into. And as we jump into this new section of the series today, there is something unique about this section that no other section of the series has. In fact, there's something unique about the world and the time that we are living in right now that was not available to any character that we've looked at thus far. It wasn't available yet to David. It wasn't available yet to Solomon. It wasn't available yet to Abraham or to Noah. It wasn't it wasn't a reality they are living in. What is different about where we are living versus them? It's that you and I are living in the aftermath of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection moment changes everything. Changes everything. You see, as we enter into this last section, we are going to talk about God's restoration story for this world. It's a story that invites us to realize that we are not slaves to our past. We're not slaves to a past that can haunt us. And we're not slaves to, to anxiety about the future that can scare us. And we're not slaves to just living in the present moment that can overwhelm us. That there is a better story that we are invited into when we live in the aftermath of the resurrection of Jesus. And so what I want to do today is I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, we are going to Revelation today. Revelation chapter 21. It's at the very end of the Bible. So if you have a paper Bible, just turn to the end and then turn like one chapter before that. It's Revelation 21. And while you're turning there, I want to set the stage because I think it's really important when people read this book, they love to jump to like conspiracy theories and crazy numerology and fear and all of this stuff. And I want to ground us in this book by telling us exactly what's happening here. It's important that we remember with the book of Revelation that it's not merely just this kind of weird fantasy kind of thing for us to, 
you know, argue about in the church when it comes to timelines and, and things like that. But it's actually written by a real guy living in a real time in history. A guy who knew what it was like, just like we do, to live in the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection. The guy named John, who had done ministry with Jesus, who had seen Jesus crucified. It's, it's the guy that labeled himself the disciple who Jesus loved, which feels a little arrogant to me, but what, whatever. And yet John knew what it was like to live in the, in the tension of the unresolved, the unknown. You see, John, at this point in his life, almost everybody he knew had either been put to death or imprisoned for this gospel message. They're living under this outrageously horrible tyrant named Domitian, who was just one of the worst emperors in Roman history. And so John knows what it feels like to have everyone around him either die or imprisoned. The church that John is a part of feels fragile at this moment, fractured. In fact, the Roman Empire had tried to boil John alive, and they didn't succeed at it, and so they exiled him to a place called Patmos, where he is living in exile. And so I want to just remind you as we read this that John is a very real guy living in a very real and very difficult tension and situation, and this is what he writes as he encounters Jesus in uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Time out there for just a moment. What John is doing here as he is pointing us in this restoration story back to the relationship that humans had with the Garden of Eden. But it's not a garden this time. It's a garden city. It's a city where human beings, just like in the Garden of Eden, are dwelling fully with God, that God's presence, the very cry and claim of the Bible is, is this idea of God's presence being united with humanity again. This happens in God's restoration story. That we are restored not just back to Eden, but we are restored back to a place where God intended Eden to actually go and become. It's a new Jerusalem. It's a garden city. And then John goes on and he says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said this, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And this is what Jesus said. This is Jesus' words. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now here's what I want to do this morning. I want to kind of visualize the story that John is telling here, because it's a really important story for us to understand how we live in the tension today. 
where we know this is the promised future, but we're not living in that reality yet. So here's what I want to do is, is walk through the story. If you can bear with me for like five minutes of theology, we're going to get really practical, but we need some of the theology first to, to get practical. Deal? Sweet. Two of us are on board. Awesome. <laughs> Just kidding. Cool. I'm going to do it anyways. I don't really care if you don't want to. So. Um, <laughs> so this is the story a lot of us are kind of taught believing in the church. Maybe you grew up with a story that went something like this. That here I am living on this earth, and I'm just kind of going about my life, do, 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 right? And, um, you know, doing all the things, and then I reach the end of my life where I have that pivot point. And based on my behavior, whether or not the good things I've done outweigh the bad things I've done, or the holy things I've done outweigh the unholy things I've done, or having the right beliefs about Jesus, at the end of my life, I reach the pearly gates, and I'm sent to either heaven or hell for eternity as a result. That right behavior or right beliefs about Jesus is what gets us in. And there's just one problem with this story here. It's not the story the Bible tells. Maybe it's a story that you've grown up believing or that's been handed to you. But the, the problem with the story, it's not the, the story the Bible tells. Because this is a me-centric story about me departing this world. I know a lot of Christians who are living out this story driving down the road of their lives with eyes on the rearview mirror, holding on to the stuff of this world, holding on to unforgiveness, holding on to anger. Or there's other Christians who are believing the story, living with this just terror of the future and what the future holds. I remember I was a middle schooler when I first watched uh, Left Behind. Anybody read or watch the Left Behind movies? Like, I've been in a lot of counseling and therapy as a result of those movies. No, I'm just kidding. But the problem is, some of us are looking to Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye for our beliefs about the future and not the actual word of God when it comes to the future. It's a great story, and it might be how things happen, but it's interpreted. It's very, very loosely interpreted, if that. Friends, there's a better story that we are invited into. This is not the story the scriptures tell. Let me tell you the story the scriptures tell. It goes something like this. That at one point, heaven and earth were joined with each other. That in the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth were one in the same. They were the lived, present reality. And then we sinned. And we've talked about this in this series. And as a result of that sin, the realm of heaven and the realm of earth have been completely separated from each other. Completely separated. Right? And in the midst of that, on earth... We as human beings, and because of our sin, have created pockets of hell here on earth all over the place. That's not a surprise to anybody. In fact, Scripture speaks about how Satan's dominion is here on this earth, that he roams the earth, finding people to devour. His dominion is here on the earth in a very limited way. But we've created this kind of hell here on earth through war and famine and brother murdering brother. And hatred, and racism, and poverty. I mean, there's just so many expressions of this hell here on earth. And this is the good news of the story of Jesus. Is that in the person of Jesus, he, as one person, through his death, burial, and ultimately resurrection, ushered in a new creation type story where heaven and earth now overlap through him. The heaven is not just some distant place 
that you go after you die, but because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, that heaven, small pockets of heaven, small glimpses of heaven can be experienced here and now on this earth. It's why Jesus didn't teach us to pray, thy kingdom stay and sweep us away. No, he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that the reality of heaven would be made known through his church here on this earth. Those are two very, very different stories. Because this, in this place, there is a tension. There is a tension. Because the story of scripture is not a me-centric story about us departing this earth. It is a God-centric story about him taking on flesh and bones and arriving to this earth. In fact, John 1, verse 14 says it this way. It says, in the word, which is talking about God, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the same language of Revelation 21, that God's dwelling place is now with his people, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the person of Jesus, heaven and earth overlap with each other. Why did Jesus go about healing, doing miracles, forgiving sins, teaching about the kingdom of heaven, which, by the way, was his most commonly talked about topic, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he is demonstrating what it looks like when heaven meets earth, like a sloppy wet kiss. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. That was not in my notes. Now I'm distracted. Okay. Scholar N.T. Wright says it this way. I love how he describes the story we're invited into. He says this, Christians talk about this heavenly Jesus who may be a savior and will come down and rapture us or whatever, but this Jesus doesn't have muddy feet. He doesn't live in our world. He isn't weeping with those who weep on the ground now. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. The vision that John is having in Revelation 21, where he says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. The vision John has looks a lot like this right here, where earth and heaven are the same lived reality, and this is where the story is heading. And what God's mission is, is that hell that existed in earth that we talked about? His mission is to get the hell out of earth. <laughs> Literally, right? Like to rid the earth of that hell. C.S. Lewis calls the reality of hell God's monument to human dignity and human choice. The God has said, you, you're going to get a taste on this earth of hell, and you're going to get a taste of this earth, on this earth of heaven. Which one will you choose? But what God will not do and what he is unwilling to compromise on is allowing the hell that we created to invade his new creation. He loves you too much to let that happen. So hell is a very real place where godlessness, just as John talks about here, this very real place outside of the new Jerusalem, outside of the city where the stuff of hell is allowed to exist. 
but not in God's new heaven and new earth. And so where are we right now? Where are we living right now? This is where I want to get practical. Okay, we made it through the theology class, okay? I want to get practical for a few minutes here. Where are we living right now? Well, we're living in a place that scholars call the already not yet. It's this overlapping place between heaven and earth. It's the place that Jesus himself inaugurated through his resurrection. That we're living in the in-between. We're living in the fact, in the time where Jesus had said, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Can you perceive it? Can you see it? The kingdom of God has arrived. But at the same time, it is not yet fully realized. It is not yet fully experienced. We live in this kind of dichotomy between heaven and earth if we are in Christ. We're living with a foot in some ways in both worlds. And in your life, Chances are you have alreadys in your life, moments where you have seen God's power move in ways that are indescribable to you, ways that just blow your mind. Jesus lived in the same tension. On one hand, he lived in the already because in him the new creation was initiated, that the new kingdom is already here. 2 Corinthians 5 says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, right? Just like the language of Revelation. The old has passed away. The new has come. He lived in the alreadys. Maybe you've gone through hell and back in your marriage. And God has done a restoring work that is nothing short of miraculous. The, the fact that reconciliation happened between those two people is nothing short of a miracle. That is an already moment. In your life. Maybe you got baptized last week, or someone you love or have been praying for for years got in that tank and got baptized. That is an already type moment that we celebrate as a church. Maybe you're celebrating a decade of sobriety or God's provision when finances have seemed hopeless or the return home of a runaway child. We have alreadys all around us. Glimpses where we know as the church, for those of us who are in Christ, that we are living in this tension of already and not yet. As a church, man, we've been able to celebrate so many alreadys over the last year. Like God has given us such a unique position of influence in this community. Just last weekend, 17 guys went to a men's retreat, and, and I saw God move in their lives in powerful ways. We've seen dozens of salvations, dozens of baptisms this year alone. People being formed into the image of Jesus according to his word. We aren't perfect. We're in process. But we are witnessing. We are bearing witness to the reality that God's kingdom is already here and it is already at hand. But at the same time, you have not yet in your life too. Our church has not yet in, in our life too. Jesus, Jesus had not yet in his life. He experienced rejection, pain, loss, heartbreak. Think about this. One of Jesus' very best friends on the planet betrayed him and then went and killed himself. That, like, do you think that didn't hurt Jesus on a very human level? Some of you know that pain personally from losing a friend like that. You have not yet in your life. 
There are some families in our community right now who are grieving loss, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a, a sister or a brother, the loss of a dream, the loss of a relationship. I think of other friends of mine who, from this church, who loved Jesus so much when I first encountered them and today want nothing to do with him. There are people in this community who have lost their jobs. Nations are at war with each other. Suicide rates are rising among young people. There are Christians, people in this church, driving down the road of their lives with their eyes stuck on the rearview mirror, holding on to bitterness, resentment, wounds, unforgiveness, and it just festers. There are other people in this church who are paralyzed about anxiety of the future. That as they look ahead, they may know the promises of this book, but they are still paralyzed with fear. And yet there are others who are living with no vision of the future whatsoever, just overwhelmed by living in the moment, in the present. There are not yet all around in this church. Like some of those same people who got baptized last weekend or went to men's retreat last weekend has struggled with sin issues in their lives and are asking the question, did my baptism even count? That, that there are so many of us getting punched in the face by the not yets of life. Like even when I read this, like it's so interesting to me. This isn't my, in my notes, but I just, I just thought of this even just reading through Revelation 21 here. That like even as we read the words, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. We ain't there yet. We're not there yet. But then notice what he says next. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Not behold, I will make all things new one day, but behold, right here, right now, in the midst of the carnage, in the midst of the not yets, I have the power to make all things new, and I am doing just that. Yeah. <laughs> and so how do we live in the tension? Like, how do we live in this place, in this tension of the already and not yet? How as a community, not just you individually, but how as a community do we live in this tension of already, not yet? How do we do this? We choose to participate in God's restoration story right now. We choose to participate in God's restoration story right here and right now, even when we cannot see the finished outcome. We choose, choose to participate. If the invitation of redemption is God has done this for you and respond, repent, like respond to the wonder of the cross, the invitation of God's restoration story is don't sit on the sidelines. Get in the game and participate in God's restoration story in this world. N.T. Wright says, if the new creation has been initiated in Christ, then I cannot be just a spectator. I have to be a participant in that story. I can't just sit and watch on the sidelines. Some of us are so stuck on that rearview mirror of our lives that we're not seeing that God has invited us to participate in the new thing that he is doing, in the new thing that he's cultivating here. When I look at the life of Jesus and the way he went about living out this restoration story, one of the things that strikes me is that constantly, 
as he heals and he does a restoration work in people's lives, he doesn't just stop there. He invites them to participate in that restoration because restoration demands participation. Restoration demands participation. Like, for example, when Jesus encountered a man born blind, as told in John 9, and everybody around this man wanted to look in the rearview mirror of his life and say, who sinned that this man would be born blind? Was it him? Was it his parents? Was he born this way? Who sinned? Where's the sin at? And what does Jesus say? He says it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him, that his life would tell a story of restoration. And so Jesus heals the guy. And then he sends the guy to wash his eyes in a pool called sin. And you know what this entire man's life becomes? It becomes a story of his restoration. I was blind, and now I can see. And Jesus is Lord, and I want to participate in that story. Here's another one. Israel, like the Jewish people all around Jesus, completely missed Jesus as the promised Messiah. Why? Because they were expecting somebody totally different than who Jesus was. Israel wanted a former king, a king to come, like a political king, who would simply just make Israel great again and not recognize that the, that the person of Jesus was the initiation of this new kingdom exploding right here in the midst of this health-filled earth right now. They missed him because it didn't look like what they thought it would look like. They completely were blinded to who Jesus was and what he wanted to do in this world. That's why Jesus says, why are you trying to put old wine in new wineskins? Why are you trying to put new wine in old wineskins? Like, why are you doing this? Old wineskins, old ways of thinking, old ways of doing things cannot contain, cannot hold the new thing that God wants to do, the new restoration story he is telling in this world. Amen. Why? Because restoration demands our participation. Here's the last one here. In John 21, after Jesus' disciple Peter failed miserably, just denied Jesus three times in the moments where Jesus needed him the most, wanted nothing to do with him, distanced himself from Jesus. What does Jesus do with Peter after this encounter, after this incident? He takes him, and they sit down on a beach over some breakfast. And what Jesus does not do is Jesus does not take the rearview mirror and say, look at this, Peter. Look, you look. Like, it's not what he does. He asks him three simple questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? This is how Jesus goes about restoration. Peter says, yes, Jesus, you know I love you. Yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus. And then Jesus' response is a call into participation every single time. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Then feed my sheep. And then he goes on and says, you will die a horrible death, Peter, in my name. But I am inviting you into a story of restoration. Because restoration demands our participation. Amen. Restoration demands our participation. And so what is Jesus inviting us into as a church right here and right now? Like, what is he inviting you and me to participate right now? How is he inviting us to participate in restoration? I love this, that our church's vision is this. Like, the thing that we are going after is this, that new life, this church, is not done until zero people remain unchanged by Jesus. And what I love about that vision 
is that that is a vision that demands every single one of us participate in it. In many ways, it's a vision of already, not yet, right? We are already seeing Jesus transform lives, but we are not yet done because there are still people out there who have not been transformed by Jesus yet. This is a vision of already, not yet. It is a vision that invites us to live in the tension of heaven overlapping, colliding with earth, but us not being fully in that reality not being fully there yet. I believe that God has done a powerful work in this community, but I believe he is just getting started with us. I believe that. Even as I look at the days ahead, there are ways in which God is giving us favor in this community that I just are blowing my mind on a daily basis. I think of even just this last week, I met with some of the um, people who run the essential store and we met with um, different grant providers and stuff. And, and one grant provider said, we are so excited about what you are doing. Here is a $5,000 check to continue serving your community. Yeah, like, we met with another one, a secular organization, that said, you know, we really don't partner with churches a lot. But you guys are doing something really cool. And I think once I talk to my board, we'll be able to support you financially as well. Like, those are, like... Another thing, we had somebody from the, the Downtown Development Association, Main Street kind of organization here in town, reach out and say, hey, we love the presence that New Life has in this community. We'd love to invite somebody from your church to serve on our board for four years and have incredible influence over even just the development in our city and our town. And so I'm joining that board next month. Like that's... Yeah. I think of just like the innovation and the creative people here. Like um, even I told him I outed him in first service, but John Fitzgerald here, like one of the things that John has shared that God has done in his life over the last year is just really like expose this need to participate in what God is doing in this community. To not just sit on the sidelines, but to actually be invited in to what God is desiring to do. And John is a guy and his son, Jordan, who care for people who are living in the not yet's in our church right now. Who are willing to go help somebody with their house who lost their spouse recently. If that's what it means, guys, to participate right now in the restoration work that God is doing. Amen. That we are living in the already not yet. Restoration is not just a future promise. It is a present reality for those who are in Christ. So how will you participate I'm going to invite the band uh, to come up here, and I just want to give you three ideas, three ideas of ways that you can participate in God's restoration work here and now. Maybe you're here this morning, uh, this, this afternoon, really one minute afternoon. Uh, maybe you're here, and uh, you're driving down the road of your life with your eyes on the rearview mirror that you are holding on to some really deep-rooted stuff, some really deep-rooted unforgiveness, some really deep-rooted bitterness, some really deep-rooted wounds and pain. How do you participate in restoration now? This way. You forgive and you release. You forgive and you release. Some of us are walking through this life with our hands around the neck of another person who is very, very seriously hurt us or wounded us or abused us. And the calling for you today to start participating in restoration 
is to begin the process, notice I say process, not moment, but process of forgiving somebody. That's not a kind of one and done thing. That's a daily decision to forgive and release. But, but friends, so long as you are holding on to that, so long as your hand is around somebody's neck for what they've done, God has more for you on the side of eternity. God wants more for you. He wants to invite you to live in restoration now, but that cannot happen while you're harboring this stuff in you. Like we as a church want to be the type of place that is willing to walk with you in that and cry with you in that and like struggle in that process with you. Again, it's not a one and done thing, but it is a necessary process that we forgive because part of restoration is we are people who have been forgiven and we extend that same thing to other people. Second one here is maybe you're just caught up in the present, the present moment, the present grind, just kind of day to day, and you're not looking with eyes to see the needs of your coworkers. You're not looking with eyes to see the needs of your family. You're just trying to survive. The invitation for you to participate is to invite, to invite three people to Easter services. Josh shared his story earlier. It can have a drastic impact in the lives of people around you. But it's up to us to open our eyes and to participate in the restoration story that God is unfolding in this community. We have so many of these dang cards that we want you to take and hand out and invite people, not just to get a butt in a seat, but to start a restoration story in someone else's life. We believe God's going to do that in a few weeks from now. The other, the other side of this is storytelling. Storytelling is one of the most important ways that we as a church can participate in restoration. I want to talk to the older people in the room for just a moment here. Older people, you can define that for yourself, whatever that means. Some of you are living as though your best days are behind you and you don't have that many days ahead of you. And can I just talk to you for a second and say, God is not done with your restoration stories either. But there are that there are young people in our church who need your stories. They need to hear your stories, your Jesus stories. I think of people in Gen Z who desperately need to hear the stories of generations who have gone before them. And I know what your response is, but they don't want to listen. They don't want to listen. Listen to me. If you're willing to get really honest, don't sugarcoat your story. Like, tell all of the parts of it the places you've messed up, the places you've tripped, the places you've stumbled. I think sometimes younger people are resistant to hearing stories from older people because there's this perception that they have it all figured out now and that they're all buttoned up. They need to hear your struggle too. Share all of it. We need your stories. Coming up in May, we're doing this, um, this uh, some of you will remember this from a few years ago, but we're doing something called Tacos and Testimonies in May. And uh, we're going to invite just different people in our church on a Sunday morning to share their stories of how God is working in their lives, to share their testimony. And we're going to eat tacos while we do it, which will be awesome. Yeah. And then the last one here. Sorry, I'm a little over, but Marcus told me I was going to be over so because he said I am every week. So uh, <laughs> The last one here is maybe you live with a fear of the future, a crippling anxiety, a, a paralysis about the future. Can I encourage you? that you, the calling for you to participate in restoration is to take bold steps of faith now. To take bold steps of faith now. I, God just kept whispering this question in my ear, Brad, will you trust me 
even when you can't see me? Will you trust the story that I am unfolding even when you cannot see all of it and the way it's worked out? Is that a, God, a question maybe God is asking you as well? Are you willing to take a step into a calling, a step that will cost you, a step that will mean sacrifice, a step that will mean service of another person? Are you willing to step into a bold calling for the sake of participating in God's restoration story in the world? Which one of those is it for you that God is calling you to? As we close, I want to just invite you to stand right now where you are, and I, I want to pray over you. And then I asked the band if they'd be willing to sing a specific song that I feel like goes really well with, with today. And maybe you'll know it, maybe you won't. If you don't know it, just allow it to be sung over you. If you do know it, sing loud enough to make up for the rest of us. So let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you that you, your story is not just good news for the future, but your story is one where you invite us to live into restoration now. You invite us to live this restoration story, to participate in this restoration story in the tension of right now. And God, your son showed us exactly how to do just that. And so God, I pray that we will not be sideliners, but that we will be active participants in what you are doing through this church, in this community, in this world. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.